from the relative comfort of my domicile to yours, welcome to a very special edition of The Other Animals for October 28th, 2021, our 103rd show. I'm Laurent Levy. Thanks for checking us out today. So if you frequent the podcast and its former life on radio, you know that we've had two previous shows where the entire time is spent with a single guest, no news segment, no conversation with Dr. Picard, nothing else, just, just a guest. So for those keeping score, they were, of course, Ingrid Newkirk of PETA and uh, famed songwriter and composer Jimmy Webb. Well, today, I'm very honored to have Alex Hershef join that elite group. I'm I'm what's known as a, a second generation Holocaust survivor. That's the child of someone who, who was a real survivor. Dr. Hershaft, as you'll hear, is a first generation survivor, one who really was actually there and one who made what seems to me the only sensible and compassionate connection between what happened during that time and what continues to happen as we speak. I, I'm not going to belabor it. I just invite you now to listen and to absorb his remarkable story and to take to heart what his journey offers for all of us. Here now is my conversation with Dr. Alex Hershaft. In his thoughts, Herman spoke a eulogy for the mouse who had shared a portion of her life with him and who, because of him, had left this earth. What do they know, all those scholars, all those philosophers, all the leaders of the world about such as you. They have convinced themselves that man, the worst transgressor of all the species is the crown of creation. All other, all other creatures were created merely to provide him with food, pelts, to be tormented, exterminated. In relation to them, all people are Nazis. For the animals, it is an internal Treblinka. And yet man demands compassion from heaven. That quote is not from today's guest. <laughs> that quote is from Nobel laureate Isaac Besheva Singer, who wrote a story called The Letter Writer, and it's uh, maybe 12 pages. I highly recommend it. But that quote is a great influence to today's guest, who I'm very honored to introduce is Dr. Alex Hershap. He was born in Warsaw, Poland, and he survived the Nazi regime in the Warsaw Ghetto and in hiding. He immigrated to the United States in 1951 after five years in an Italian refugee camp. He's lectured extensively about his journey from the Warsaw Ghetto to his struggle for animal rights in Israel, in Europe, and throughout the United States. He received his BA in 1955 from the University of Connecticut and his PhD in inorganic and physical chemistry, chemistry sorry, from Iowa State University in 1961. He spent the next 20 years teaching in Israel and working for military and environmental consulting firms in the Washington, D.C. area. During that time, he also led several organizations advocating for religious freedom and testified at congressional hearings about diet and health. Dr. Hershaft began his global initiative to end the use of animals for food by launching the Vegetarian Information Service in 1976. Five years later, he founded the Farm Animal Rights Movement, FARM, which grew into a national force opposing animal farming. Since then, Dr. Hershaft launched World Day for Farmed Animals in 1983, the Great American Meatout in 1985, and Vegan Earth Day in 1989. He also organized eight animal rights conferences between 1981 and 1991, and 20 more between 1997 and 2017, several of which I have attended. In 2019, he launched the vegan blog to offer a bi-weekly critical review of the history, accomplishments, and potential of the U.S. animal rights movement. Alex, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Um, I guess, you know, the place to start, uh, I, the, the quote, the, the singer quote, you know, makes a, sets the tone, I think, for, for a, a great influence. I, I know it's influenced you, it's influenced a, a lot of us. And I was just wondering, to, just to set the stage for anyone who, who may not know, uh, if you could, tell us the story. I, I know you, you've told it so many times, but your, your own background, your own, your own history of, of what, how you got from Warsaw to this moment of epiphany, I guess is, is the only way to describe it, of connecting these dots that um, aren't necessarily uh, easy for, for people to connect in terms of, of suffering. If you just give us a little bit of your history. 
Sure. Uh, actually, uh, it's a fairly long history, and I'm a bit embarrassed that it took me this long. But I will say in my defense that uh, uh, the concept of animal rights was totally non-existent. The concept of veganism was basically non-existent, was very, very limited. And the concept of vegetarianism was uh, quite rare. And, and my initial preoccupation after coming to the United States in 1951 at age 16 was uh, uh, just... Uh, enjoying the fact that nobody was trying to kill me. And then as a corollary, uh, trying to make a living, you know, trying to uh, provide a roof over my head and, and food. So I was pretty preoccupied with that during the initial years throughout the 50s. And then of course, uh, uh, school, going to University of Connecticut, and then graduate school at Iowa State University. So the thoughts of uh, that that went beyond my my personal uh, survival and my my personal care really uh, did not occupy much of my time. Yeah, it was there, right? It was clearly clearly on your mind, right? Even if it was recessed or or uh not yet dominant, right? Right. Yeah. But what, what happened in 61 is uh, I uh, went to Israel uh, to take on a position at the Technion, the Israel Institute of Technology, a teaching position. And uh, at the same time, I felt uh, a great deal of personal confidence because uh, I was in a pretty privileged position in Israel, having been born in Poland and uh, had a PhD and coming from America and so forth. And, uh, and I came across an incident uh, where uh, a, a baby goat was being sacrificed by a local group to celebrate the birth of a child to that tribe. Mm. And uh, I found that so ironic that uh, that they would celebrate the birth of one child by uh, sacrificing another. And uh, I decided that as a personal reaction that I would no longer eat animals. And it was a very personal decision and I didn't know actually any other vegetarians. So I, I kept it pretty much to myself for many years it was much, uh, but but one of the things that also happened in Israel is that I started reflecting on uh, on the Holocaust and uh, what happened to me, and and uh, a bit of what they call survivors' guilt had mm -hmm. set in, and I started asking questions like, uh, why was I spared when so many other good people were not, mm -hmm. and what could I do to repay the debt? And uh, is there some lesson that can be learned from this terrible tragedy that befell my people? And, uh, and I didn't have answers, but those questions really, really bothered me. And uh, then I, uh, in 1975, uh, back in the United States, I happened to attend uh, World Vegetarian Congress in Orono, Maine. First time it was held in the United States. And uh, this was the first time that I actually met other vegetarians. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were about 1,500 people there. And uh, they had all kinds of dress, uh, different ages, different economic station. And uh, the only thing they had in common was that they were all vegetarians. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so at home. I had felt so relieved that there were so many other people who shared my uh, beliefs about the consuming animals. I, I still did not know anything 
of what we know today about the health issues, the environmental issues and factory farming, that was still pretty foreign to me, but just the concept of not eating animals. And I resolved right then and there that I would uh, spend the rest of my life fighting oppression in general, starting with the oppression of animals mm. for food. And that uh, basically uh, provided the answers to my questions of how could I repay the debt? And is there a lesson that mm. could be learned? So when we were, I, I know I'm going a bit no, long. No, but by all means, My, my other <laughs> answers will be shorter, I <laughs> promise. Right. I'm trying to cover about 15 years here. Uh, uh, so when we were in the ghetto, we were comforting ourselves by the mantra, never again, meaning that, uh, yes, we were suffering, but there would be a payoff because the world would be so shocked by what the Nazis were doing to us that there would never again be any other genocides. So we were kind of thinking, okay, okay we were making this sacrifice mm -hmm. for the sake of, of the rest of humanity. Well, of course, that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. There were many other genocides in Darfur, in Bangladesh, in, uh, uh, in uh, yeah, throughout yeah. the world, in the, in the Congo and in uh, Rwanda. Even even while like I, I, never again, it's almost it's almost I, I had a, a similar moment a couple of years ago uh, with my family to uh, to uh, Japan and we toured the, the, the Hiroshima Museum. And what's the theme there? Never again. It's like it's, it's almost never. It, it's there is going to be again. Uh, there, uh, until which I think we're, you know we're going to talk about today until the, this this light goes on, I'm I'm curious the the story with the um, with the goat that that's a that is an a, an epiphanal moment, but your 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 experience in the ghetto and your um, childhood and the the experience of you know again I don't mean to to draw out this this really gut wrenching story with your family. That, that association of seeing, you know, your your own family killed. Uh, there's, there's no way to, to other way to say it. And uh, associating on a mass level what you saw in the ghetto and what you saw th throughout the, the the Holocaust, and other other people who have been who I've talked to who've had that experience don't make that connection that that you made that that I think. If, if the goat story is where, where that all comes back together, where your childhood and, and the future, when you saw that moment, uh, other survivors have not done that, the, the, the people that I know. I, I, do you know how you made that connection? Like, why were you able to say, to, to see that slaughter, sacrifice, whatever you want to call it, of the goat, and connect it and not disassociate and with the common theme oh it's just an animal it's just a goat okay yeah uh, that uh, the goat incident was actually not terribly consequential it basically it, it did not lead to any profound uh, philosophical reflections it basically helped me decide to stop consuming animals oh, okay Okay. That, that was it. Uh, what you're describing came uh, much later uh, in 1972. When I came back from Israel, uh, I went to work for several uh, government consulting firms in the Washington area. And uh, they sent me, because of my background in chemistry, I ended up specializing in wastewater management. And they sent me to a Midwest slaughterhouse uh, to do an inventory of their wastewater problems. And uh, I was walking around with my notebook, taking notes, and uh, I turned a corner all, and all of a sudden I faced these uh, piles of body parts. Now, you know, there were heads and hearts and lungs and hooves and bones. And uh, <laughs> it was 
pretty shocking. I mean, I, I knew theoretically that I was in a slaughterhouse, but that was an abstract concept mm. until I came across these body parts. And the other thing that happened in my mind is I got this flashback to the body parts I saw when I visited Auschwitz, where they had these piles of hair and gold teeth and shoes and suitcases and eyeglasses, you know, remains of the human victims. And, uh, and, and it was a very, very shocking confrontation. And uh, I was actually in mental anguish for a number of days and weeks until I came across that quote that uh, you quoted at the beginning of uh, this uh, podcast from Isaac Bershevis Singer, that was the first time that I realized that there was at least one other person in the world, no less than a <laughs> yeah, Nobel yeah. laureate, who, <laughs> who shared this crazy notion that there was some parallel between what the Nazis did to us and what we're doing to animals. Since then, of course, I've spent quite a bit of time on it, and I have found many, many more parallels, and I have actually studied this question in considerable depth. And what have you found? <laughs> and I don't mean to be flippant with it, but it's so fraught with peril. Uh, there's, there's so much history. There's so much history. Um, there is... Uh, there is a tendency in current 2021 where we compare everything to the Holocaust, that it's become it's become almost a cottage industry to just anything you see, anything that's uh, that is yeah, you decide you feel is evil or is 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 uh, unjust. You compare it to the to the you know you compare it to the Nazis. You compare it to the Holocaust. Uh, there's even on the internet this thing called a Godwin's Law. When when you, an argument goes on so far, the first one that's going to cite Hitler or or the Holocaust loses the battle, right? Because you you've you know you've reached for your ace in the hole. But the it is such a vast topic, and I'm just how do you how do you address the 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 side that says you can never make such a comparison because the events of the Holocaust were unique in the annals of history. Nothing, nothing like that has, has ever been. And if you try to make a comparison either to animal suffering or other human suffering, you somehow, uh, you, you diminish. The Holocaust. So that, that is one, one argument. So let's start with that. Like how, how would you answer that? Right. Well, yeah, I, I let me start by, by making sure that, uh, it's understood that there's no intent to diminish the horror of the Holocaust or, or to make it sound uh, trite or, or unimportant or insignificant. Uh, and in fact, I generally don't bring up the analogy unless I'm asked. Uh, let me also say that uh, in analyzing the similarities and in examining people's objections to the similarities and people's pointing out differences that I have not yet come across anything that would dissuade me from my thesis, which is that the similarities are overwhelming mm -hmm. and that if you can get past this concept that you're diminishing the tragedy of the Holocaust, there is a lot to be learned. So just to give you, first of all, some superficial similarities, which is uh, the, the herding uh, of the victims, mm -hmm. the use of uh, skin markings to identify the victims, the use of uh, wooden structures to house them, the use of cattle cars to transport Jewish victims to the gas chambers, uh, the, the, the deception so that the victims would not know that they're about to die, the callous disposal of the bodies. Uh, then I came across objections, uh, uh, particularly in reading 
a, an excellent book on the subject called Eternal Treblinka mm -hmm. by Charles Patterson, Patterson which I re recommend to any student of the subject. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite available from Amazon in paperback or Kindle format. But the, some of the objections was that, uh, for example, that the motive for the Holocaust was racial hatred, whereas the motive for animal uh, slaughter is financial gain. And I, I recognize that, that, that difference, mm -hmm. but uh, that difference only applied at the, at the highest level, at the initiation, at the mastermind level. Yeah. The actual killings were per, in both cases are performed by people who, for whom this is merely a job. It's a job that they hate. And it's a job that they try to perform under what they consider humane conditions. One of the most bizarre things I read in Eternal Treblinka was this this uh, ongoing debate between the commandant of Auschwitz yep. and uh, some of the other camps, whether carbon monoxide or hydrogen cyanide were more humane in, in the sense that they would bring on death more quickly. Uh, so uh, th th that's just one example of, mm -hmm. of, the, of the objections that have been brought up. The notion of, uh, I, I see the parallel that it is, it was a, by doing the, the deed repetitively, repetitively, right? There's a natural desensitization just to the repetitive actors. And I, from what I have read of people that work in, in slaughterhouses, and so there's an, another excellent, uh, every 12 seconds, I'm sure you know that book, which is stunning. They hate it, just like what you said. And uh, it, it does, particularly the, the role with one called the knocker, right? That, that person has psychological issues. And it's terrible. It's terrible, miserable work. Uh, th there is a, um, a, a counter narrative, I guess, from, from so many Holocaust films that, in fact, the, the, uh, the actual Nazis who rounded, who, who rounded up the Jews, put them in the cattle cars and, and managed... Auschwitz, Birkenau, and Treblinka, and everywhere, actually didn't dislike it so much. They were they were into it. They were they had been conditioned, you know, by by hundreds of years of you know whatever the, the, the research that we know on the Holocaust by uh, uh, you know Jews as vermin or less than you know less than human, and that in fact they were doing a good deed for the for the fatherland for for the Fuhrer, and there is a sense that they may not that that comparison uh, may not necessarily be in fact that that some of some of some of the nazi perpetrators actually were not as repulsed as slaughterhouse workers uh, what do you think about that uh, it's it's quite possible it's mm -hmm. quite possible there certainly was a lot of indoctrination yeah. involved uh, but the the other part of the argument and i'm not i'm not saying that was not the case uh, I'm, I'm sure that there were many cases where the SS guards uh, decided that that they were that they were doing the right thing. But uh, the other part of the argument is that the alternative was to be sent to the Russian front, which uh, where they would either freeze or starve or be shot to death. All right, so, so they had to. Little less of a choice than a typical slaughterhouse mm -hmm. worker. Okay, uh, but yeah, point, I mean, point definitely taken that in in either case, it's it. Um, but but also some of the things that I found out just by reading Eternal Treblinka is that uh, they were very concerned about not being personally responsible for the death of of anyone. So, mm -hmm. for example, we. Uh, well, the, the whole concept of gas chambers came in because initially uh, they would just line up the victims in front of a ditch and shoot them in the head and mm -hmm. dump them in the ditch. And uh, there was a lot of objection because there was a, a direct 
killing involved. Mm -hmm. So the one idea behind the gas chambers was that they could depersonalize their participation. So mm -hmm. like one guard would uh, drive the prisoners, the victims into the gas chamber, another one would uh, uh, introduce the gas and so forth. When it came to the actual handling of the corpses, which would very openly and dramatically confront them with their deed, they did not do that. That was all handled by other victims. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, that, that, see, that's an interesting distinction, right? Because uh, in slaughterhouse workers, well, it, it's similar in that, in that the, your um, division, of, uh, division of labor. So that I was alluding to the, the knocker, right? But the, the knocker does his thing and, and goes down the line. And you've got the next guy who actually slices the cow. I don't mean to be too graphic here, but who actually uh, slices the, uh, the throat of the, of the cow in this, in this example and down the line so that no one, no single person is doing the entire thing uh, and is necessarily confronted, as, as you say, with, with the deed, with, with, with their deed. In fact, by the time it gets to the end, you have a beautiful porterhouse, you know, or a, or a filet mignon or something at the end. That, that's and look, you could you could actually say, look, I'm I'm feeding you know some some hungry populace. Um, that said, but anyway, my intent here is not in any way to reduce the guilt of the SS guards. Uh, that's not my point at all. Okay. okay point is to try and explain uh, how this terrible tragedy could have happened mm -hmm. and to use the tragedy that we are committing on animals here every day uh, uh, to, to, to explain how, how this can happen. In other words, in their estimation, what they were doing is not all that different from what is being done today. And the people who are responsible for, uh, one of the conclusions that I draw is the people who are responsible are not so much the slaughterhouse workers or the SS guards, mm -hmm. but the people who are paying for exactly. and orchestrating yeah. this. Mm -hmm. That is really my principal conclusion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's demand in the case of, of the slaughter. If, if the demand dries up, everything down, everything downstream, no, no pun, dries up along with it. I, I think in the case of, uh, of the Holocaust, it's um, the, the, the concept of demand is, is broader just in terms of the, the longer history. You know, you have, you had, you had the, what came out of world war one, you had centuries of, of the church, you know, in their role, you know, you had, uh, you had, it's almost a perfect storm. I, I always bristle a little bit when people say, you know, Hitler came to power and then the Holocaust happened. No, Hitler didn't come to power and the Holocaust happened. There was centuries in the making. I mean, is, is that, I, I think it's not un, unfair to actually kind of state that, but, it, but the, the point is that if, if the, if you don't have that uh, sequence of events or all those, those, the pyramiding of the events, then the guy on the end, the SS worker or the slaughterhouse worker finds another, another job basically, right? Yeah, in, uh, in Germany, as you point out, yeah, there was a lot of background going all the way back to Martin Luther and, and even before mm -hmm. uh, where, and uh, uh, well, it's, it, was, it wasn't so much that there was anything special about the Jews. It was just the fact that there was no one else. I mean, we were the only minority in Europe. It's difficult for people in America to uh, picture this, but uh, we didn't have any blacks. We didn't have any Asians. We didn't have any Africans or uh, any other minorities. It was just the natives and the Jews. Well, of course, the Jews were natives as well, but they were somewhat distinguishable, uh, actually less so in Germany than in other countries. The Jews in Germany were pretty assimilated, not mm -hmm. so much in Poland. In mm -hmm. Poland, uh, Jews were, uh, were, were pretty well identifiable, more so than in Germany or, or in Italy. 
Uh, and then uh, what basically what Hitler did is he capitalized on these sentiments to control the population. And uh, within the first three years after assuming chancellorship in January of 1933, uh, he, well, he, of course, this all culminated in the famous or infamous Nuremberg laws where Jews were stripped of all rights of citizenship and basically reduced to non-entities. Mm-hmm. If we can, I, I want to still probe this issue if, if, of how you were able to, to I, I, I say connect the dots, but make the, make the association that, that, it, it, that we've talked about methods, right? The, the, the wooden and, and the trains and, and that kind of thing. And, and those methods are very, similar and even in eternal um, Treblinka, i know uh, uh patterson talks a lot about uh, the chicago stockyards and how that served as a as a logistical model for for how how to actually move that many people to you know th- throughout the the throughout europe well i was talking before before we we started talking i was talking about a, a friend of mine uh who recently passed away and uh He's a cantor, and uh, and I used to accompany him. I was as a pianist for years, and every year we would do this um, um, a memorial for Kristallnacht, and it's very moving, right? We would perform and have a very large number of people, hundreds of people would show up, and the speeches would rotate around. Never again, you know. What have we learned? And you know, we must see to it that that the lessons of the Holocaust. And very moving, and we get to the end, and uh, you know, close the ceremony, and afterwards go out to eat and go to a place here in Philadelphia where everybody sits down and has brisket and corned beef. And I'm looking at, at this, <laughs> you know, where I'm going with this. And I'm just like, what? how can you not see, how can you not? Of course I didn't say anything, right? I've, I've never said anything with this hand, but, but to me, it is blatant. It is so in your face that everything that you've just spent the last two hours decrying never again, you're doing it right now. And, you know, even as that's coming out of my mouth and saying, well, well, my God, are you, are you, how offensive is that? You know, the fact that I never said that, what do you think of that? I mean, that's not a, that's not a stretch. That's, that is to, to come out of that and then go the other direction. And it's as though they don't matter. So they're not, they're not making that connection. Well, the, the, yeah, the other thing uh, which touches on what you just asked is, uh, one of the objections to, to, to my thesis is that uh, humans have higher moral value than animals. You know, that, that's usually expressed by the expression, they're only animals. In fact, that's the very expression that I used when I first saw the piles of body parts in that slaughterhouse. My first reaction was, oh, don't get all excited. They're only animals. And uh, but that didn't work for me. And the, the more I thought about it, the less it worked for me. And I finally realized that uh, we assign moral value to sentient beings, not so much on the basis of their species, race, gender, religion, nationality, but more on the basis of our personal relationship with that being. And this is why. We're, we're ready to spend a small fortune on uh, getting our family dog to survive their cancer or whatever is ailing them, but not a red cent to feed the starving child in the Congo. Because we have, we, we have a personal relationship with the dog, yeah. but the starving child in Congo is, is abstract. It's, abstract. it's over there. It's somewhere over there. It's, uh, it's, it's almost an issue of, of let's say, proximity, but but closeness yeah. and attachment. Yeah. But that's so, human uh, nature, in a way, right? I mean, we're we're always we start. We're going to be we're going to care for our family before we care for the people before our neighbor across the street. Right? Yeah. So obviously, I I care very much. I I, I in no way do I equate uh, the victims of the Holocaust with the victims of the slaughterhouse. I mean, I have a personal stake. You know that. The, the Polish Jews, Jews in general, are my people. Mm-hmm. This is the, my family, my grandparents, my father. You know, th- these are people who are very close to me. In no way are they comparable with some abstract pig or cow. 
Okay, mm -hmm. but that's my that's my personal issue. That is not going to solve the world's dilemma about how to prevent future mass holocausts, mass genocides, mass extinctions. Mm -hmm. How do we stop this mass killing of other sentient beings? That's not going to be solved by viewing things through my personal lenses. Yeah, there's there's lots of quotes that you're touching on. I'm going to mess these up, though, but uh, one of them is uh, Auschwitz begins whenever someone looks at a slaughterhouse and thinks they're only animals. Uh, it's that kind of, you know, and you were touching on that. It's they're only and that's that's <laughs> right. That's the challenge. It's not it's not, as you say, getting getting that message, getting that message absorbed and accepted and, and internalized. Is where the action is where the action lies you know and in fact uh, you know this is an intermediate step which i didn't mention i forgot to mention when i was listing the parallels but uh, a very very common step in uh, all forms of oppression and mass killings involving human beings involves uh, reducing their humanity, mm -hmm. their status to that of animals, mm -hmm. which is supposed to make it uh, more acceptable to do the oppression and the killing. Do you think that, that I'm, I'm processing slow here, you know, that notion of, the, you know, we're going we're, we would, as you say, spend, spend our fortune to, to get our dog or cat, you know, uh, to the vet. Uh, uh, to beat the cancer and, and you can also add that that be, because they are closest to us we also have that issue of we give them a name you know that that's that's important and and the the concept of the opposite of that is that if they are if they are abstractized and turn that into a verb and they don't have a name and they don't have a face and they really are food you know to connect f food <laughs> with with, with how the food got made, you know, with, with the fact that there is, there is such a, that is, that, that is a hard, hard message. And I, I have to, to confess, I, I probably quoted you on, on the, on the show about a zillion times. I'm hoping you're going to do it for me <laughs> because one of the things you, you've said on, on multiple occasions is um, on the subject is to get people to, for example, in, in any social movement, you know, gay rights or something like that, to get to get someone to to make some kind of a change, like we're talking about here, is you know, it, it, it's you can motivate them, you can provide a motivation, but to get them to do it when it comes to their food, you you basically have to ask, Miss you have to ask them to not be an asshole, and uh, three times a day, <laughs> three times a day, don't be an asshole, and yeah. And, but that's, I mean, that, that is, how do you, I mean, that's what the whole movement about is. We're going to talk about that in a second. But to me, that's, what do we do with that? Very definitely. Yeah. No other social movement. Well, the, yeah, there are two, two characteristics, very fundamental, that are very, very different from any other social justice movement. One is that, that uh, our clients are unable to speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the other is that uh, we require a major lifestyle change yeah. three times a day. Yeah, yeah. There's another piece to that just before we move on to the movement. The, um, I was talking about, again, this one survivor. At one of these conferences, uh, one of these, Kristallnacht, uh, afterwards we met, I, I met it would have to be your 180 degree opposite who was a survivor who saw he saw his family slaughtered and he came to the states and he became a a meat packer a large business he became one of the uh, he, he started his own slaughterhouse and uh, then became one of the one of the biggest meat producers in the midwest and i actually don't have his name but i met him and i was how can you how could you have gotten there how could he 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 have reached that conclusion and you went 180 degrees the other way. I, I, did, I couldn't bring myself to speak with him because it, it was, it was, um, I want to say appalling. It was, it was shocking that, th that someone who'd been through the exact, really the, the, 
no two scenarios are, are the same, but but the parallels are, are you know are all over the place. That he could just turn that off and 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 really buy into that. I'm guessing that they're just animals. Yeah, I think there are two aspects of it. Uh, one is uh, uh, being able to rise above your personal experience and look at uh, global issues from uh, maybe the 20,000 foot level rather than the five foot level. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other is, uh, you know, what do you want to do with your life? You yeah, know, do you, yeah. do you just want to survive and, uh, and uh, you know, go out to eat occasionally and, and just lead the average life or or do you want to make a difference you yeah. know I, I was trying to answer one of my survivor questions what can i do to repay uh, the fact that i have been able to continue living and uh, it was very clear to me that uh, that would be a perfect way mm -hmm. to repay for the fact that I survived. Yeah, but but something, you know, I, I just think that something had, for, for those of us who have, who have been affected by the, the movement, which we're going to talk about in just a second, and, and the, that there's, there's this moment happens where you really, you feel empathy, you feel, you relate to this animal, and it doesn't have to be a dog or a cat. It can be anything that, you know, any, it can be, Yes, as crazy as it sounds, an insect. There's, we're talking, you know, my guest a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, the potential sentience of, of some insects, you know, regardless of how you try to scale it, something happens and you say, I don't want, it's, it's the most basic common element across all religions, right? I, I can imagine that this is a harmful thing that I would want to avoid. Therefore, I will not perpetrate it on another. And it doesn't matter that it may have horns and a tail that I don't, I don't want to do this thing to that because I don't want it done to me. It's, it seems so basic and, and yet elusive. Um, we're talking, uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, Alex Horshoft. He's the uh, founder of the Farm Animal Rights Movement, among others. And um, I, I want to talk about sort of, we were talking about sort of when you, when you got going, in the uh, mid seventies and you sort of got this, this thing off the ground and you, you actually hinted to it hint, alluded to that there was really, other, you know, when you encountered your fellow vegetarians for the first time, it was like, Oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> what a liberating moment that that must've been. Uh, and back then to actually attempt a vegetarian lifestyle was really uh, difficult. I, I think compared to where we, we are now, I'm curious if you have a sense, uh, a feeling in, in, in the span of years that, that you've been doing this, how far we've come. Uh, are you pleased with, with, the, with, the, uh, with the progress we've made so far, that the movement has made so far? And, or or are, you, are you wishing that the pace would, would pick up? There's a, I mean, so much has happened in the last, what, 40 years, 45 years in, in the animal rights movement, due in a large part to, to your efforts. But I'm just wondering if you have a sense of, of that arc. Sure. Well, uh, I, I'd like to provide three answers to your multiple question <laughs> uh, because I, I see three questions. Uh, where, where the country has come is huge progress. Most people find it hard to believe, but I with a PhD in chemistry in the 1960s, in the, throughout the 1960s, while I was a vegetarian, I was convinced that I would get sick mm -hmm. and I would, probably would not die because I figured, okay, because of these ambitions I had for the rest of my life, I would make this sacrifice. And if I got sick, I would have a hamburger and recover and, 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 and go on. And that's how far we've come. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a, so until 19, so in 1971, a young graduate student named Francis Moulapé published her master's thesis 
called Diet for a Small Planet, in which she, uh, it was meant to point out the tremendous waste involved in raising beef. Uh, the, it was kind of an environmentally oriented book. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things it suggested is that you may not have to eat beef. If you are concerned about the problem presented in the book, one solution is to avoid beef and and you could avoid beef and survive if you ate complementary proteins like like, uh, rice and beans and so forth. She gave these elaborate formulas, how you could survive without eating beef, basically. Well, there were two, <laughs> there were two uh, results. Of the, the book was extremely popular. It uh, sold millions, millions of copies. And it had two uh, results. One was that it was the first time that people realized that they did not have to eat meat to live not just beef, but meat in general, mm-hmm. that, that there was a workaround, basically. Mm-hmm. And the other was the people who reacted to beef and decided to eat chicken instead. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so the, so the, if you can do the calculation for, for every cow who was not slaughtered, now 200 chickens were slaughtered. So the chicken consumption shut up and the beef consumption went down a little bit. But anyway, uh, so I'm only mentioning this to to just reaffirm the ignorance, the widespread ignorance of nutrition in this country. It wasn't until the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs published the dietary goals for the United States in 1977 that uh, the country, the, the broad public finally realized that meat was not only not essential to nutrition, to, but that it could actually be detrimental. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where the public opinion has, has come, made this, this rapid advance in the 70s from total ignorance to some level of familiarity with nutrition. Yeah. Uh, the movement itself was pretty much born in the mid-1970s. Uh, the, the concept was introduced by Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. The other singer. <laughs> singer. The other singer, yeah. Yeah, singer, yeah Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and became a subject of lively debate among philosophers. And, uh, and then it got into the legal field and then there were uh, law schools that started giving courses in animal law and a number of organizations were formed. So that all kind of peaked, uh, that that kind of happened like between the mid seventies and maybe a few years ago. Things have movement-wise have kind of leveled off, I would say, at this point. Uh, In terms of consumption, uh, the great promise, of course, is in the the great success so far by uh, plant-based meat and dairy products, which hold great great promise. What do you mean leveled off if... if because you're about ready to say that, that we're accelerating with, with all the alternatives here, uh, and yet the, the progress of the movement is, is uh, stagnating? Is, is... Yeah, the, the, the people who are promoting, so, so there are really sort of two parallel aspects to the movement. There is the vegan aspect, which is to get people to stop exploiting animals. Mm-hmm. And there is the animal rights aspect which is basically the same thing. But well, it's the, it's the abolitionist. I always frame it as abolitionist versus the welfares, but it, that same same notion, right? It's well, all, no, right? that's a that's a different argument. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so, well, yeah. So, so the the, the 
they, they both end up, animal rights and veganism both end up in the same place, okay. which is that you shouldn't exploit animals. Mm -hmm. But the animal rights comes at it from a philosophical standpoint, and uh, veganism comes at it from the dietary. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, there was uh, another uh, <laughs> part of the movement that you're alluding to, which is the welfare people who are concentrating on animals being made uh, more comfortable while they're being used for food. In other words, uh, letting them out of the cages and making sure that they're slaughtered humanely and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that has gotten a huge boost from a foundation uh, called Open Philanthropy which has pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into the welfare aspect of our movement, which uh, <clears throat> obviously I don't subscribe to. <laughs> but you know, I was, you know, I was mentioning that uh, the uh, at the beginning there, the, the farm animal rights, the conferences that that you've uh, held for multiple years. And I, I remember my first one I was in 2015 was the first one I attended it was in, in the Washington location. And as I was walking the the floor and seeing all all the uh, what do you call them the, the presenters and the vendors and you know uh, the different organizations, I, I was really struck at that time by what I would sense is that there was I don't say splintered but there was so many different angles that, that the different organizations were coming at this from you know and uh, e you know even that you would have no the, the, the elephants in the room right you had. Peter on one side and, and humane society on, on you know and that I, I was just like why can't <laughs> why can't we federate you know why can't there be something so that when when some massive uh animal rights movement comes up that the movement speaks with one voice and um i, I think what we're talking about is explains that we're we're, we're not we're not a cohesive the, the movement is not at the moment anyway cohesive with one message particularly i think because of the reasons that you just uh, that you just described would you like it to be do you do you see that as as, as something uh, a unified movement at some point no right really? uh, okay I, I, I think in fact uh, that the splintering will persist because you know we're dealing with human beings who mm -hmm. have a problem with harmony <laughs> But uh, very musical, uh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, major, yeah. The the major uh, splits within the movement uh, when it comes. Well, first, the biggest. I wouldn't call it split, but but the difference in emphasis is on what animal exploitation do you consider most egregious? And uh, you know, we chose animals raised for food because of the numbers. You know the account for between 99 and 98% of all the uh, animal exploitation. Within the people who care about animals raised for food, there is that split between uh, ending all killing for food and uh, making the animals more comfortable while they're being killed for food. I think that there's general agreement uh, among all the factions on the ultimate aim, which is that all animal exploitation for whatever reason, food, uh, fashion, entertainment, research should end. It's just that the, 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 the nuance in the word exploitation though, right? What, what one organization's exploitation is may not be another organization's exploitation. Is, is that where the, where the splintering is, <laughs> the devil in the details? Uh, not so much that it's more in uh, uh, how to get there. Yeah. The methods. Yeah. How to, how to get to that ultimate goal. So um, just as we're, as we're wrapping up here, um, one sort of last question for you on, on the subject, where, where would you like to see the movement, let's say in, in five years, 10 years, when, when will you have, what's your definition of the movement being a success? You say you, We've arrived. What's that vision? Uh, well, I, I don't <laughs> think I will live that long. Where I say we've arrived. Uh, 
I think it's uh, a matter of making continuing progress. I think that by far the greatest promise because of the fact we mentioned earlier about requiring people to change their lifestyle three times a day. I think that by far the greatest promise for farmed animals, animals raised for food, is in the tremendous growth of plant-based meat and dairy products, uh, which uh, is fairly recent. It mm -hmm. basically uh, kind of blew up about five years ago. And it's there are all kinds of uh, investors now, including the traditional meat companies that are now investing in plant-based and uh, cultivated meats and dairy products. And uh, that uh, because uh, once, once people don't insist on eating animals, it'll be very easy for them yeah. to embrace the animal rights ideology because after all, we have a natural affinity for animals. Yeah. Uh, the very earliest toys we handled yep. Animal toys, the very first stories that got us emotionally involved were animal stories. Uh, when we were growing up, our best friend was our family dog rather than our classmates or even our siblings. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, yeah so this pat. Uh paves the way the, the word was the cognitive distance I was trying to think about earlier where and and you know this potentially alleviates that or assuages that gets into where I, I don't have to and I can re revert back to my natural uh tendency which is to love the animal you know to uh, you know they don't want necessarily given a choice to to be a you know to slice a chicken's throat or to not people would probably choose not but they don't they don't want to make that that association and this gives them the, i think what you're saying is uh the opportunity listen uh alex thank you so much for your time um i know you're working on uh, your your latest project is uh the vegan blog so uh, i want you to tell people where where they can go uh to to read that and any other uh information you want to um, pass along sure thank you uh well like, as you point out it's the vegan blog.org okay veganblog.org. Uh, so far, we have uh, had, uh, I just published my number 59, which was about this very subject that we were talking about, and that is what makes it possible for otherwise decent people to commit atrocities. That's, uh, that's actually uh, kind of a yeah it's That's very hard of it <laughs> with what we were talking about okay. right. and uh, yeah. my organization is the farm animal rights movement and the mm -hmm. website is farmusa.org farmusa.org i also have a website that deals with uh, some of my holocaust issues and that's uh, never-again.org Back where we started <laughs> never again all right listen uh, alex thank you thank you so much for your time um this this is really really special and i, I really really appreciate it well thank you i enjoyed having this truly truly an amazing individual i i can't thank alex alex enough for his time uh it's amazing um by the way, that last website he mentioned, uh, neveragain.global, uh, it provides additional details into his childhood experience in the ghetto and what happened to his family. We, we didn't we didn't really get into that in the, in the interview, and, and that background might be of, of interest to, to you. Uh, by the way, I'm also going to post references to the Charles Patterson book he mentioned uh, on my website, uh, theotheranimals.com. And there's another work that we didn't get to. It's by a former guest of mine on the show, Boreas Sachs. And he wrote a book uh, simply entitled Animals in the Third Reich. If you're, if you're interested in this topic, uh, those, those two books are really, they need to be on your shelf. All right, so that, that's our show for the week. As always, we'd love to hear from you with comments, ideas, or suggestions. Or if you have a topic you'd like uh, Dr. Picard to address, just check out theotheranimals.com and you'll see the, the link there where to, where to send us your information you can also follow us on twitter and facebook at the other animals or the other animals one and don't forget to check out our partner podcasters at iroarpod.com 
Com. Next week, we're going to resume our series with Matt Zampa from Sentient Media, and he's going to be discussing this bizarre problem that was uh, announced this week of Europe's ready for the, Europe's butcher shortage. Yeah, Europe has a butcher shortage, Crimea River. And uh, you also may have heard, I guess it's truly historic news this week, about the offspring of hippos once owned by Colombian drug kingpin Pablo Escobar. And those hippos can now be recognized as people or at least as interested persons with legal rights in the United States. And following that, was a, there was a federal court order that made it so. Uh, and that is, that is historic. Uh, the group primarily responsible for that milestone event is the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And we're going to be talking with two, uh, two attorneys from that organization, Christopher Barry and Ariel Flint. Uh, who were who were principal in leading that effort? So um, you're not going to want to miss it uh, next next week. So until then, find a belly to rub. We'll see you there.